0: I'm Dr Sharon Blackie and I'd like to welcome you to The Hedge School podcast. The Hedge School was born from my belief that the personal, social and environmental problems we're facing today have arisen not just as a result of our profound disconnection from the world around us, but a lack of rootedness in our ancestral traditions. The Hedge School then is about building a new folk culture, but one which is deeply rooted in the native traditions of Ireland and the British Isles. It's about practical guidance for living well, living authentically, and above all, connecting with our places, listening to the lands dreaming, and finding a deep and sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate earth. It's about reclaiming ancient wisdom, not to hark back or try to recreate the past, but to use that wisdom to help us build authentic traditions for today. In our podcast series, we offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. The wisdom contained in myth and folktales, connecting with our places, reclaiming our indigenous roots, the practice of traditional crafts and old ways of knowing, and so much more. If all this resonates with you, do come and join the discussion in our online communities. You can find out all you need to know at www.thehedge.school. Okay, so I'm here with Paul Kingsnorth, actually in his writing cabin in um, the east of County Galway. And Paul uh, was born in southeast of England. Uh, he spent his early post-university years predominantly as an environmental activist and a journalist, in 2009, he founded the Dark Mountain Project, which I'm sure we'll come to briefly as we talk. But mostly, I would say he is a writer of quite a few books. One No Many Yeses, which was a kind of anti-capitalist mm, book. It was. Real England, which was about the, well, the the death of Real England, I guess. Um, the Wake, which was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize. Which is a follow up to that, and I think there's one more in the trilogy.
1: There's one more on the burner as we speak. (laughs) Excellent. Slowly chugging along.
0: Well, maybe we can talk about that too. Uh, And Paul is also a poet, so we'll come to his writing. But as I said, we are actually in Paul's writing cabin in his garden or in his land in the east of Galway, and I always think of you uh, not just because of real England but because of much of your writing, much of your journalism since the time that that I've known you, which would have been about, I guess since about 2010, as a very English writer. So how did you come to be in in the middle of Ireland? Yeah, it's a very good
1: question, really. Um, I do write a lot about England, um, obviously, because it's where I'm from. Uh, And what I really write about is place and culture and identity, which isn't a choice, actually. It just seems to get into everything I write, even if I'm not trying to write about that. So yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the simple answer to it is that my family and I wanted to live in a particular way. Uh, We wanted to have a few acres of land we could work, we wanted to be as self-sufficient as we could, Uh, we wanted to homeschool our kids, we wanted to have a small house, preferably with no mortgage because I'm a writer and it's very hard to earn a living this way. And it was impossible to do it in England because the whole place has been largely stitched up. So if you're not rich, a small cottage in England with a bit of land is very hard to live on so I was faced with this strange paradox of either kind of staying in my homeland and living in a way that I didn't want to live and in a way which as a family we didn't want to live in either or sort of going somewhere else that I was a foreigner in Um, but living in a way that was more kind of in tune with what we wanted to do and we chose to do the the second thing and we've we've always liked Ireland we don't have any ancestry here or anything I come from an English family my wife comes from an Indian family so neither of us has got any Irish ancestry at all. We've always liked Ireland. We've been here a lot. We have Irish friends who live quite near us, which is why we ended up in this part of Ireland. So it's been interesting. I sometimes I feel a bit like Joyce, kind of writing about Dublin from Paris. Um, but it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting thing to do, to take yourself out of your country and to see yourself kind of through other eyes, to, to be an immigrant, basically. You know, it's, it's productive, actually. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful place, Ireland, as well, in a lot of ways. And it's kind of going through a lot of things that England's been through already in terms of development and modernity and the loss of folk culture and all sorts of stuff that's happening out here in the countryside. But even despite all of that, there's still a, a kind of real, slow, different kind of rural culture out here, which is um, which is also something I wanted to be part of. Yeah, so it's, I don't know, it's a kind of grand experiment. Sometimes you just throw yourself into things to see what will happen. <laughs> so that's, that's basically what we did.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I think a lot of people who don't know any better and who haven't been here or spent any Significant amount of time here, I seem to think that it's just like England with a, a funny accent, but actually, mm. as a as a culture, I mean, I grew up with it because um, my family is Irish and I was raised by an Irishman, so I was always surrounded by Irish stories, Irish music. Uh, from being very, very small, but as a culture, it is it is profoundly different. It is, mm-hmm. isn't it? Even in the cities, it has a sense of being still profoundly rural, but the extent of the rural culture is, is quite dramatic, and so the influences are much, much different from the influences um, in England.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you, the longer you live here, the longer you realise that. It's like anywhere, you have to spend a lot of time anywhere new to realise the differences, because as you say, on the surface, they seem fairly you know, similar places in a lot of ways, but yeah, no, the attitudes are different, the... Uh, the stories are different. The attitudes to land are different as well. The attitudes to nature are different, for good and for bad. Yeah, it's, it's always just a very interesting process to kind of become part of that. Not just to sort of hover in the middle of it and watch it watch it around you. So.
0: And belonging is a, a funny kind of word, but and it means different things to different people, but mm. would you say that you have any sense of belonging here? I know you said that you have been in this particular house five years now, or you've been in the country five years. Clearly, I, I'm guessing you still identify as an English person? Oh, I'm
1: never going to stop being an Englishman. <laughs> so no, 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 but, but in but yeah, terms no, of identification... With the that, well, you know, identification is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, in, a, in a way, people often say to me, oh, you're a very English writer and a very English kind of man, which I suppose I am, just because it's, I keep touching on it. But although I do feel English, I mean, I don't know, even know what it means to be English. I mean, I come from the southeast of England. I come from London and Kent. That's where my family are from. I lived in the northwest of England for a time, and I didn't feel like I belonged there. Uh, I liked it. And I had good friends there, but I, it wasn't my place. The northwest of England is very different to the southeast of England culturally. You know, in some ways, it's almost as different as, as Ireland in the southeast of England. So, even now, England is quite diverse. So, although I feel English and from a particular part of England, ne- I've never had a hometown or a place that I could go back to and say this is where I came from because my family moved a lot when I was a kid, and they come from the kind of sort of industrial working class, lower middle class of people who are always kind of being shifted around by employment and have been for centuries. So I don't have a, a p- particular place. You know, I have a country that I can say, well, that's my identity. But I don't have a place where I can go back to and say, well, this is my home, this is where I belong. And also, I think writers are the kind of people who constitutionally don't belong to anything, actually, in a weird way. Mm. Some of them are, anyway. Um, there's always a kind of, for me anyway, um, there's a kind of strange kicking against and a wanting to be part of something. I do want to be part of something, but at the same time I kick against I want to be an independent individual. I don't want to be defined by something. So there's always this kind of tension. And I think a lot of good writing comes from some kind of tension inside you. Mm. So I might have that. But, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Irish. My children might be. It would be interesting to see how they grow up. Um, they, they certainly feel Irish.
0: Have they an accent?
1: They haven't got an accent because they're <laughs> homeschooled. <laughs> ah, so they've still got their English accents. But who knows yeah. if that will change. They certainly use a lot of Irish terms in their, in their speech now. But, you yeah. know, I'm hoping that they will grow up feeling like they belong where they grew up. I'm not going to bring them up to think that they're English. I'm not going to tell them anything. They just get what they get. But, um, you know, identities are very fluid things, but I, I think ultimately they come from places, so I don't feel I'm Irish. But I do feel I'm starting to belong to this small few acres of land that I live in, which is probably a different question.
0: And this is the first time you've had this kind of land of your own?
1: I've never had anything except a very small urban garden in Oxford before. I've never even owned a house, so I, uh, I never owned anything at all. So I've had an allotment, and that's it. I always wanted to have some land, well, not always, but for a long time. And I think actually, I think that the, the phrase "having some land" is weirdly possessive because you never own it; you just pass through it, and hopefully you can steward it well, which is how I feel. Like I'm, I'm what I'm trying to do uh, is about having a relationship with it. That's what belonging is, if it's anything. I think it's a relationship of some kind. It's not just, it's not possession.
0: So I'm cu- I'm curious about this. So forgive me for pressing it a little bit. So no, you 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 have a, so you have a relationship with your patch of land. Does mm. it matter to you that that patch of land is in Ireland, in the sense of the myths and the stories and the culture of this country? Is that part of your attachment to the land, or is it kind of separate from it? I'm not in any way no, no, suggesting a value it, judgment. By no, the way, no, I
1: think it's an interesting one because I think if I had a patch of land in England, I would probably feel like I had a less. I had a simpler relationship with it because I'd just be going, oh, well, this is my country, I wouldn't have to think about that. But it's an interesting question. So there are probably a lot of stories attached to this piece of land which I don't know. Whilst I know some of them because I've been told some by, by neighbours around here. And the people who lived here until 150 years ago, 200 years ago, always have spoken Irish, and never spoken English. So yeah, in that sense, it's, it's a strange thing. But that comes down to the question of what relationship does the land and the language have does it matter to Does it matter to the trees? Does it matter to the land? Does it matter to the soil, whether the people who walk on it, speak one language or the other one? And that comes down to the kind of culture of landscape that people have. Is there a kind of existing mythical song of the land around here that I'm sort of coming into?
0: You see, I would argue, sorry to interrupt you, that mm. there is. And I live in the Gaeltacht, which is a mm. little bit different. I'm not a fluent Irish speaker, but yeah. my husband is. And also Scottish Gaelic. And so the way that literally the language shapes the way that you see the land and the things that you focus on in yes. the land and, mm. and the, the things that matter to you. Yeah. And I would say there is no question but that it's very different, that the Irish language reflects a different way of, of, well, of, course, of appreciating the land. All languages do,
1: and that's one of the things I was writing about in The Wake when mm-hmm. I wrote about the Norman invasion of England and how the different words. Uh, different a French word for a tree gives you a different relationship to the English word for a tree. Then, of course, all the people around here don't speak Irish. Right. I don't know any Irish speakers, including all the old people. My neighbours are in their eighties; none of them speak Irish. Right. right? Um, they, they, they're not really very interested. The kids all learn it at school, but they don't speak it. Right. And there isn't much of a folk culture around here in any public sense at all. It's interesting. You know, the people are well, they're just like anywhere else; they're being sucked into global culture. And again, that's not a value judgment. but people are spending more time on their TV. Uh, I was in the local pub last night, there was a folk session down there they have one every month, and it was, uh, it was great. There's music in one corner, but in the other corner, people are watching the TV and looking at their phones. And that's mostly the younger generation of Irish people. Right. Um, whereas half the folk singers are English. Great. <laughs> <Right>. Because <laughs> they all want to sing Irish songs. So, yeah, what does it mean? That's the question that interests me. As languages change and as people come in and move around, what's the difference? Can you have a relationship with the land? I mean, if you just come into a place that isn't your culture and you just you're entirely new and you have no relationship with the existing culture, there's a certain poverty to it, you know, that you haven't got layers of meaning that were built up. But then the question that interests me is, under the sort of guise of modernity, is that not happening to all of us? It's certainly happening to Irish people as well as English people. I mean, the, the Irish language speakers are shrinking every year. The Gale is shrinking every year. Despite the fact that so much money and effort's put in by the state to promote Irish, the speakers, are the same same in Wales, the same thing's happening, it's very interesting to see it, but people are just buying into the global language, which happens to be a sort of transatlantic version of English now. And the same thing happens in England, that's interesting as well, so you look at the dialects around England, Mm. if you go to somewhere like Devon now, which would have had very, very specific dialect words for the fields, for the trees, for specific songs, most of the people in Devon have got a sort of home county, southeast Mm. accent, even the ones from Devon, I know plenty of people from Devon who don't sound Devonian, and so you've got this kind of homogenised version of English spreading out everywhere, mm. including across England, mm-hmm. which homogenises England too. Right. Um, and the relationships, are, yeah, the, the specificity of the language to the place and the stories that come from that are not there.
0: It's interesting, though. I think I always think that one of the reasons why people find it so difficult to to find a sense of belonging, um, particularly in countries like America and. Australia and the the rest of the diaspora, for want yeah. of a better way of putting it, who a lot of the people who read my books, who do my courses, yeah. come from that kind of background. They find it very very difficult to find a sense of belonging because they don't have stories in those places. Because yeah. their stories, the stories um, in those places, the stories that they know, are stories of often you know half a half a world away. Yeah. And so, a, a lot of my own focus has been on on how you make your own stories from scratch how mm. you land in a place whether it's you know some you've just landed here or whether your family um, landed there a generation or two ago how you begin to construct your own stories of place which mm. which lead you into a deeper relationship with it yeah, is that something yeah. that you have been finding yeah here? well I think
1: that's what I was trying to get at just now clumsily uh, I mean talking about language I mean I can't I can't plug into Irish stories because mm. a for a because I don't speak Irish be because I don't feel Irish, actually. I don't feel like Celtic stories have very much to say to me. I'm very interested in them, and I read them, and I love them. And I can, you know, I can read Yeats. Yeats is interesting, isn't he? This sort of Anglo-Irish version of the, uh, of the old stories, and give them out to a global audience. I love Yeats. Um, but it's not my culture. Mm-hmm. I can connect to sort of Anglo-Saxon and Nordic stories,
0: so, how do you connect here? Because you well, can't don't collect connect to Anglo Saxon
1: stories. Well, well the no, theory. I don't. And so you're right. It's about having, them, that's where it comes down to relationship. The story, mm-hmm. I mean, stories come from places, right? Mm-hmm. So, a people arrives in a place and they have a relationship with the place and they create stories based on that place, which is what the Gaels did when they got here. But of course, they weren't here first. There were people that they displaced, and the same is true everywhere. So, everyone's always turning up, displacing the people who were there before, mm-hmm. and creating their own stories. Correct. But they all come from the landscape. Yeah. So, you're right. It's about creating this. If, if there are stories to be told if we want stories, then they come from listening, I think. They come from paying attention mm-hmm. uh, and they come from seeing what lives here. And they come... I mean, that, that's, what, that's what stories have always come from. The interesting thing about that now, of course, is that we live in an industrial, modern society. And so people don't have any intimate relationship with the land anymore in the same way that they used to. Even the farmers around here, don't they? They're always in their tractors. They're not walking the fields. You very rarely see anyone out walking at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, same in the English countryside. Hardly anyone is outside. Whereas a generation ago, people are literally in the fields because things are not so mechanised. They need far more people on the land, Um, and so you can have a relationship based on knowing what is there, because you see the creatures in the grass as you mow it with your scythe, or you hear the birds in the trees because you're not in your tractor, uh, and you can see the mound that has been there for a hundred years, and people think that the good folk live in it, whatever it is. But now, because everything is so mechanised, including farming, there's not that kind of intimate relationship with the landscape that creates stories also the question of who a people is. What does it mean to be any group of people if increasingly we're all plugging into the same global culture? Do we even have that kind of identity? So all those questions are kind of up in the air. For me, it's interesting.
0: What stories do you find in this land?
1: It's a good question. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I wrote Beast in here, my novel, Um, and there's a huge storm in that novel, um, which kind of precipitates the plot, Um, which comes from this land uh, because I sit in this cabin in the winter and the winds just rage here and I'd never experienced wind like I'd experienced till I moved to the west of Ireland. Incredible. In the winter, three months of solid <laughs> wind. I mean, we're an hour from the sea and it's still just, yeah, astonishing. So it's a living thing. It's like a living monster that comes up and tries to consume the building. So that found its way right into the book because I wrote it here. So in that sense, that's, that's one thing that's happened. There's a few other things that have sort of found their way into things I'm writing at the moment, which I won't talk about yet. But yeah, I mean that's—I don't know if those count as as myths or tales or anything. For me, it's just a question of listening to what the the land's got, rather than trying to willfully construct a sort of a folk tale around it. You know, because I don't think you can do that unless you're folk.
0: Right. I haven't read much of what you have said, if anything, about Mm. beast. But I always imagined that the beast um, in the novel was the land mm. in some way um, representative of the land am I on the right track before I ask my question you're not or... on completely the wrong track okay
1: I, very, I always hedge <laughs> around this because a, there are very specific meanings in beast and there are different layers to it and I'm deliberately not telling people what they are <laughs> because that makes it more interesting and also it's a book that you know people have to find their own way into and you have to have had certain experiences maybe for it to make sense it's a strangely willfully difficult book but
0: okay yeah, but then I, may, I may not be on the right track but I'm going to ask you the question anyway and then you can mm. just tell me if it's, a complete, if it's just a complete irrelevance. I'm curious about if it does, if the beast does in some way represent the land or place or some relationship with the land, why is it so sinister? Mm. Why, is it so, it's almost, why is it stalking the man?
1: Yeah, well, it doesn't quite represent that, that's why. Okay. Um, it's something okay. else. It's a, it's a beast. It's, if you look at the journey of Edward in Beast, it's very much a, It's a spiritual quest and what he's looking for and what finds him is what right. finds you on a spiritual quest in particular particular path actually that I've experienced myself so you can work it out from there but I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) you...
0: Spoil sport. uh,
1: Yeah but it's um, I mean there is an element of it's a deliberately pan-psychic book in that sense that it is very much about the mind of the land but the the animal isn't quite that. Okay. Okay. Something slightly different. But it's not sinister actually for me the animal it's just elusive. It doesn't ever express any animosity. He thinks it does maybe but it doesn't. It just does what it does. Okay. What it represents changes depending on how he sees it. You know, that's um, it can be peaceful, it can be vicious, it can be terrifying, it can be welcoming, depending on his mm-hmm. state of mind. It's really a book about his state of mind. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's been fun to watch the reviews of that book because everybody's got a different idea about it.
0: Is oh, that right? Yeah. And and how uh, is there anything you can say about the next one, or would you rather not? Because she's well, it's set again. a thousand
1: years in the future, and it is set in the Fens again in uh, East Anglia, where. The wake was set, and it deals—I don't know—it deals with the same themes in a way, but very differently. But no, I won't say anything beyond that because okay. it's, uh, I don't quite know myself yet where it's exactly going to go. But I've got a pretty good idea, but wouldn't want to give the game away. So. Okay.
0: <laughs> and why? Why the Fens? Why does that as a landscape capture your imagination, or is it just practical? Well, actually, originally
1: it was a practical thing. Well, f- there, were, there were two things. In the wake, I wanted. Somebody to uh, I wanted the main character to live somewhere that was fairly cut off from the mainstream of civilization in his day, and because he's fairly cut off, I wanted him to be someone who has a strange, slightly separate relationship, even with the culture he's in. Because Buckmaster, when it suits him, will represent himself as this great English patriot, but when it doesn't suit him, he doesn't give a toss about that. I mean, he's deeply self-centred in that sense so you know if it suits him to be the great defender of King Harold then he will and if it suits him to oppose King Harold the next minute because he doesn't want to send his sons to war then he'll do that and he's, he's got this defiant independence which ultimately kind of is his downfall that he doesn't think he has to have a relationship with anything and the Fens has that kind of feel in, in, in the early Middle Ages because it hasn't been drained it's a strange network of marshes and you have to know where to go in order to not drown and everyone's living on these strange islands which may be the case again in a thousand years' time, interestingly. But the other reason is that Buckmaster is a particular type of farmer called a soak man who used to exist in the 11th century. Um, and they only existed in the eastern counties of England, and they seemed to have been a remnant of the Danish invasion, and they were independent farmers who had their own land, and they were only answerable to the king, rather than the local earl, which is also what I wanted, because I wanted him to be somebody who, again, was saying, you know, this is my land and I don't have to answer to anyone, because he's that kind of man. So both of those things came together. And I've never, you know, I've never lived in the fens or anything like that. I obviously traveled there to, to research the wake, but it is even now a really haunting landscape. It's very interesting. You can sense below the surface all ha- all they'd have to do is turn the pumps off for a few weeks and the whole place <laughs> would flood again and all the strange old gods and old ghosts under the mere would all come out again. So yeah, it's a very interesting place and it's one of the first places where the Anglo Saxons arrived and the Vikings arrived mm. and it's it's still got well, a sense of being slightly cut off from the rest of Britain.
0: Mm. Interesting, I don't know it at all. I... I tend to go for a more mountainous landscape, so I can't really imagine. Yeah, no,
1: it's not like the kind the, of place I'd want to live in that sense. It's entirely flat, it's mm. very monotonous in a lot of ways, but there's something really strange and interesting about it. Mm. There's something, talking about a spirit of place, if you look at it on the surface, it's extremely dull. It's very flat, it's huge fields of grain, it's got nothing interesting about it at all, but there's definitely something...
0: So in your early years you were very much an environmental activist, you were involved in the road protest movement and many other movements and you were deputy editor of The Ecologist and around about the time I guess or leading up to the time when you founded the Dark Mountain Project which I suppose advocated, if I can use that word, as a different approach to the catastrophes that we find ourselves in now when you began to, to believe that that was no longer an appropriate response or no longer a meaningful response to the world. How, uh, tell me a little bit about that journey and how it relates, if at all, to your writing and to your own sense of place, or your own journey towards a, um, a sense of
1: place. Well, um, here's how I see it now. Dark Mountain existed to do two things. One was to create a school of writing and art that was attempting to be honest about the state of the world which didn't mean polemical writing, it meant writing which looked at the mass extinction we're living through and all of the sort of darkness looked into the void and said, okay, well that's where we are, what does art look like if we take that seriously? That was the first thing. And the second thing for me as an environmentalist was to, was to say, okay, well look, environmentalism doesn't work on a global scale, and it doesn't work because it isn't possible to turn around the economic machine, and the economic machine is what's causing the damage and these attempts to ameliorate it with sustainability and different technologies and all that stuff, while well, well-intentioned and sometimes doing some good, are not going to change the direction of travel, which is towards more extinction and unstoppable climate change, and we don't know where that will lead, but it will, be, it will certainly throw everything up in the air, so again, what does it look like if you take that seriously? we got to a point where that's what we believed, and that was ten years ago that we founded that, and interestingly enough, the stuff we were saying then, which people accused us of being doomy collapsitarians for saying is now completely mainstream because it's just bleeding obvious um, and it's, I, I don't know a single mainstream environmentalist who wouldn't admit this now. Uh, even in private, uh, often in public, um, because it's true.
0: And so, how have you personally come to terms with that? Because obviously, you're a very passionate environmental mm. activist, and then all of a sudden, I mean, clearly, you don't wake up one morning and realise that it's it's all bullshit and it's no, not I mean, going to work. But how did that how well, did it's that happen? A, to it's you? Just a growing
1: realisation, of just going through it and keep banging your head against the wall and it doesn't work. Um, and for me, you know, activism as such, it's just it's only a means to an end. People can get very tied up in the identity politics of activism, but it's only the only point of being an environmental activist is to protect nature from destruction. In other words you might as well not get out of bed. And there's still plenty of that that can be done, and it is being done. So I'm not dismissive of activism <laughs> or anything, but right. the bigger-scale picture is that you know maybe I was just naive in the first place and thought that we could turn around the giant capitalist monster, but we can't. So, yeah, for me, it was a process of coming to terms with that. But in the process of coming to terms with that, what I've realised is that at the core of this is a spiritual question, if I, if I can use that word, which is a horrible word, but also, I can't think of a better word. We neither. so we'll go with that. Without wanting to sound new-agey. We don't have a relationship with, I mean, I've written whole essays about this. We, the word holy is interesting to me, because, because it comes from an old English word, which is uh, the word haig, and, and that means whole. Whole, as, as in not broken, not divided. Um, and we don't see nature as holy or whole anymore. We see it as something we can tear into little bits and use. And having started off as a very kind of utilitarian, political, atheist sort of liberal activist many years ago, the conclusion I've come to now really is that there's this huge spiritual void at the heart of our relationship with the natural world, and actually at the heart of our whole culture. That's a bigger question. How long can a culture survive which has absolutely no sense of the sacred and no sense that there's anything greater than humans and that there's nothing that you bow your knee to? I don't think there's ever been a culture in human history that has survived with, without that core yeah. and we are one um, which arguably is probably the root of all the crises we're having cultural and spiritual environmental worst so. but you can't have you can't have a relationship with a living place if you see it as a collection of resources it's very simple and we know that um, and that is a spiritual question but because we live in a very materialist and secular society we endlessly hedge around that and, and just pretend it's really about
0: well, it's classic something that, else. you know, the, the embarrassment that we probably both feel at using the word spiritual. And yeah. You have to immediately say, oh, I don't mean to sound new agey, you know, yeah, that, yeah. if you take that.
1: Well, the word spiritual is a word you use when you know that you have to have a religious relationship with something, right. but right. you haven't got a religion. Right. Uh, and 70% of young people in our society now, under the age of 24, don't have any religion. It's very interesting that. And
0: in your own practice, though, is, is Buddhist, I understand.
1: It is. Well, I do, yes, I'm a Zen Buddhist, but I don't see that as a religion in the same sense. It's mm-hmm. a practice. It's not a religion in the sense that there's no god involved. There's no supernatural.
0: But it's a curious, place. it's a curious thing to me for someone who writes, and I'm curious about mm. about how that works for you because as someone who who writes now very much about place or mm. about relationship with land, that is a practice that comes from a completely different part of the world. Mm. How how do you marry the two together?
1: Yeah, but it's also a practice that takes different cultural forms wherever it goes, which is interesting about it because Zen is a practice of understanding the self understanding the mind, looking at the self, realising that there is no self, moving on to, you know, it's a process of self-examination, also examining everything that goes on around you. So it comes from India, it moves to China, um, then it moves to Japan, then it moves to the West, and in every single one of those places, it takes a completely different form. Uh, Then there are other strands of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and Korean song, and all these things. And all the sort sort of things that we associate with Zen, like ringing bells and wearing black robes and all that stuff, that's Japanese cultural practice that has become part of Zen, so Zen came from India through China, into Japan, and every time it arrived in a new country, people culturally adapted it, and that's happening now in the West, it's becoming quite Western, mm-hmm. you know, it, people aren't doing Japanese chants very much anymore, at tea ceremonies, it does happen, mm-hmm. but because it's not, because it's not a religion of place, it's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual and psychological practice, it can take forms anywhere it goes, so in that sense it's universalist, you know, it's either, it's either correct or it isn't. And, uh, and do you
0: find that that practice helps you connect with place in a more meaningful way or is it more well, about what
1: it does it? is it helps strip away your delusions about yourself mm-hmm. uh, and your delusions about what you're attached to and you start to see that your attachments come from a particular place you know it's very psychological in that sense but it's more than that too it's really just a, uh, in some ways it's about clearing the mind uh, and freeing yourself from your delusions of who you think you are and then you're able to have a clearer sight of everything mm-hmm. uh, and all the stories you tell yourself you can realise that some of them are you know Ultimately, everything is a story. That's what Zen will show you. That's what any study of psychology will show you. So, what stories are you creating and why are you attached to them? And why do you need them? And are they beneficial or not? Where do they come from? All these questions kind of spin around all the time. But, you know, the religious question is interesting because, uh, as I say, Zen is a practice, it's not a religion in the sense that it doesn't really hold anything sacred beyond the human. There's no creator myths or anything like that. So, what is it that? If a society doesn't hold anything sacred, if it doesn't believe anything is more important than humans, if it doesn't believe anything has a consciousness other than humans or that we have any duties or that we should make any sacrifices or anything like that, in other words, if it's materialist and progressive and utopian, then I think it just becomes a, a nihilistic monster, which is, quite, which is what we are. We're just living in a nihilistic monster and we're flapping around trying to find plasters to put on all the wounds we're creating. And I don't have an answer to what to do about that. You
0: know, how it's, do, I don't how have a
1: religion you, I can turn back to. <laughs> no,
0: but then how, uh, having having got to a stage where you recognise that, mm. um, where you recognise the mess that we're in and the, chance, the very slim chances that we can do anything meaningful about it in the short mm. term, how do you live well under those circumstances?
1: Well, I think the first thing to do is to stop imagining that, well, A, stop imagining you can do everything or save the world because you can't. B, stop imagining that that means you can't do anything because it doesn't. Uh, And, you know, C, people always get bogged down in this question of, oh, well, if we can't turn it all around, what do we do? And it's a very weird kind of dualistic notion, which I came across for 10 years during Dark Mountain. People would always ask me this. They say, well, uh, if you you don't think we can turn around the, the whole global economy in time to stop climate change, then what's the point? What can you do? As if... it's not so
0: much what I'm asking it's not so much what you do but Mm. how you live
1: yeah no I I wasn't suggesting you were asking that really but that's that's a common question and it gets Mm -hmm. people stuck in this mindset which people are still in where you either have to save the world or collapse in despair and the how do you live question is 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 the answer to it because you just you do what you can do simply Um, and for me the question is okay what what is greater than me or do I bow my knee to and the answer is the natural world really on the spirit and, and the the essence contained within it which if there's any god that's where it will be it will be in the creation so have a relationship with that listen to it the two things I do or the three things I do actually were, are having this land and kind of rewilding and, and promoting and protecting as much wildlife on it as we can which has gone pretty well it's very different from what it was like five years ago in terms of just the creatures living here uh, secondly just keep writing about it in any way that I think is honest and appropriate and thirdly just you know trying to bring up my family well and and work with my kids to teach them this stuff and give them as much time running around out here and paying attention to the trees and the streams as, as they can because we're not going to turn around the culture that we're in in the sense that you can't take a giant individualistic materialist nihilistic beast like this and turn it into a quote sustainable culture either spiritually or in any other way, I don't think. So it, it's, it's already clearly starting to fall apart in all sorts of different ways. That's just gonna happen. That's It's happened a million times before in human history, so that will, that will continue to sort of crumble slowly, and other things will rise up to replace it. So the question is, what what sort of contribution can we make to the other things that rise up to replace it? Gary Snyder has this nice idea that we're we're, we're on a 5,000 year quest to learn how to live well with the Earth, he says, we've only just started, so. Right. That, for me, is a very relaxing notion because it's not suddenly my generation or my kids' responsibility to do everything immediately.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting to me, what you tell your kids. My, my, the last guest on this podcast, um, Bayeo Kamalafi, wrote a very beautiful book, which was a series of letters to his uh, young daughter and unusually for that kind of book it wasn't to pass on fatherly wisdom it was right. almost to do the opposite right. it was kind of to say look here are all of the things that we don't know mm. and i'm not going to tell you what i do know i'm well, going to tell you what i don't know a um, and it was a, it's a beautiful book by the way mm. i thoroughly recommend it right. but what do you tell your kids in the face of you know of, well in the face of what we're facing
1: mm. well we just tell them the truth i mean that, you know it's because they spend a lot of their time outside they spend a lot of their time studying nature they have relationships with each tree in the garden and they spend a lot of their time looking at the way that you know beetles live and that can be a mathematical lesson or a scientific lesson or a lesson about poetry depending on how they're being schooled at the time you know they have a relationship with nature and it's you know these things happen on the micro level like so we don't we try not to buy any plastic um in the house which we fail to do because it's virtually impossible but at least we try and minimize it you know and so you have a conversation about that and my seven-year-old son berates me any time I buy anything in plastic now. He won't let me buy biscuits. Well, he's conflicted because <laughs> he wants to eat the biscuits and he doesn't want them to be in plastic. So, but, you know, this it, you have these discussions about things and people, they understand what's going on, they can talk about it. And because you're having a conversation, you're not just filling them full of depressing propaganda about how we mustn't do A, B, C, D, E. Because environmentalism can become horribly puritan very easily, you know, it's just a litany of why well, you mustn't do things, which is why so many people ignore it it's about relationship you don't you, you don't want to protect anything unless you love it and you can't love it unless you have a relationship with it so if you've got a relationship with even a small patch of land and some trees then suddenly not buying plastic that's going to get thrown away makes sense do you understand why you're doing it or not eating factory farm chicken or something like that so it's um it's just it's having conversations and they're they're mature enough to be able to have those conversations and you can have them without you know I, I don't like to fill their heads with too much doom because it's not profitable but you know, the next generation has to have a relationship with nature that's healthier than we had. Mm-hmm. Certainly healthier than I had. I was never brought up with any of this because my parents knew nothing about it. Why would they? So, right. so, but we do know now. So if you've got the knowledge, you have to try and do something about it. Mm-hmm. But it starts from love. It starts from love. Another uncomfortable message. Because it's, it's not... The message that a relationship with nature starts from love and the, rela- and the message that there's got to be something sacred at the heart of it are two messages which are deeply uncomfortable because we're secular and irreligious, but also because practically it's very hard to do anything about that on a societal scale. It's not like saying, well, we can roll out the solar panels. What you actually do about that? It's personal work, mm-hmm. and we're addicted to the notion that there ought to be one solution that we can roll out for everybody, and it's a kind of one-size-fits-all activist framework but it isn't it's personal and
0: almost private actually strangely yeah and but with that love clearly comes a sense of of grief Mm. when you look at the world when you look at the state of the world when you look at what we as a a species have done to it and that brings me uh, rather snappily (laughs) to your latest collection of poetry songs from the blue river which i must admit when i started to read I was—I don't weep very easily, but I think I wept my way through the first half of the book, I realise, um, okay. which I, I couldn't really <laughs> well, quite put down. Way, so yeah, and it's very—I it, yeah. found it very moving. Mm-hmm. I found it very moving, not because it was kind of like you know all torn up with grief, but because mm-hmm. there, there very clearly is a sense of love tied up with with yeah with just mm-hmm. a, a kind of horror at, at what we've done to the world. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could read us a poem from that book, and then let's talk go. about. Yes. Let's let's see, um,
1: yeah, I mean, these poems are quite a few years old now, they're probably five years old, so they're, they're, they're part of this process of, you know, it's a kind of grounding of grief in a way, I don't want to give the impression these are all about grief, because they're not, but if you have any, there's something that Mary Oliver the poet said, and I can't remember it exactly, but she effectively says, if you have any kind of ecological conscience, then the world is a nightmare a lot of the time, because, you know, it's easier to be asleep and sometimes I would like to be one of these people who doesn't really notice or give a shit about nature because I yeah. know people like that and it just doesn't move them at all. They're much happier, yeah. Uh, and they're just yeah, fine, they're fine. Mm. If you you know, if you really care about trees, which is my great passion, we've planted about eight hundred of them here, then just to see your neighbour taking one some mature tree down with a chainsaw for no reason that you can understand and then burning it is, is really upsetting. And it would be nice not to care, but mm-hmm. once you do you, you can't you can't kind and of shut that down. So it is, it is about dealing with those things on a personal level, I suppose. But also having that equanimity, if you come back to the practice of Zen. Zen allows you to observe your own emotions and just say, well, okay, there's that, That's, I'm feeling grief now. You don't stop feeling it, but you don't necessarily lose yourself in it. You don't let it destroy you or take you away or drive you mad, which is easily done. I know a lot of activists who burnt out because they just couldn't cope with the sheer scale of all the horrible stuff they were having to deal with especially when most of the rest of the world isn't really listening. So it's, you know, it's just having that, some sort of equanimity. I'll read the first poem, actually, because that's kind of about that. And these poems were all written in Patagonia, um, or most of them, quite a few years ago. So this is called a brazzo, which is Spanish for embrace. I walked from this place in a rain of evening, took the cinder path that led to the sea. I had questions for the sea. I took along all that had knotted my shoulders, and torn through my digestion, and had me muttering in the streets like an outpatient, and reaching up to the trees, and howling under the stars, and kneeling in my world's dirt, rolling it between my fingers, and calling the birds my brothers, and asking the grasses how to live, and never being heard for years, for years. I took all this, and I thought to heave it into the swell, and watch it sigh away on the evening ebb. Instead, I stood on the flats by a fist of drowned roots in a low drift of sea cloud as dusk came down. And I watched three young dolphins arch in the fjord mouth as if I were the sand itself or nothing at all. And I waited until they went under and did not rise again. And then I thanked them and I shouldered my load and went home. So, yeah, shouldering your load. It's just kind of what you have to do, isn't it? And I see it now as something that Wendell Berry says, and again, I can't remember the quote, but it's like, you know, if you have have this knowledge, if you have this vision, if you can see what's happening, that's a burden you've been given, and you have to carry it. It's fucking hard sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to. You can't walk away from it, and you can't let it destroy you, and you can't let it turn you bitter and angry, which is easily done
0: and is that the function of writing for you to help in some way um, like a process of alchemy oh certainly one of them it is a it? process
1: of alchemy actually I'm just about to be I'm in the middle of writing an essay about writing as alchemy actually which is interesting <laughs> to me funnily enough but yeah absolutely I mean if I didn't have the writing I'd go insane <laughs> no doubt about it I mean it, it, I, I wouldn't want to be simplistic and say it's therapy it's not therapy it's this is how I work things out you know <laughs> I work things out on the page I work things out in my head and in my heart and it comes out on paper and that's the only way for me to kind of make sense of what the hell's going on inside and outside and you have to examine what's going on inside yourself to have any idea of what's going on outside which is another mistake that a lot of activists make and that I made for a long time which is to take your own kind of anger or desire or rage or righteousness and kind of project it all out to the world and see all the problems being out there which many of them are but many of them are also the relationship you have out there and if you haven't put that in order first then you turn into one of these very angry righteous people shouting all over the internet at everybody else and imagining that if everyone else were just shut up then the world would be fine if everyone would only agree with me but, uh, it doesn't quite work like that sadly
0: and Dark Mountain is very much about I guess encouraging um, people to express to, to express themselves in that way in art and in writing and your mm. own courses do that too don't they you've just started a new set of courses under the umbrella of the weird school mm. w y r d i should yes. say for so people who haven't seen it yet yeah. and i was interested in on the website you say that one of the purposes of those courses is to look at how to bring humans back in contact with the non-human world so mm. how how can you do that through writing and through art what are you what are you offering to people in that work well it's really
1: i've been doing courses on and off like this for years and i've just kind of brought them together under this umbrella now and I'm running courses with others. We did a great course with an artist friend called Caroline Ross who also works at Dark Mountain um, just a couple of months back a month back actually on Shirkin Island in West Cork and that was very much a process of spending five days right on the edge of the Atlantic with a group of people. Caroline's art is fascinating because she makes all of her own materials from from the soil and from feathers and from uh, everything that you can get from the land around you. So immediately everyone's literally making the material they use to write or to draw from the landscape around them, so immediately they're paying attention to the colours, they're paying attention to what the land produces, the kind of rocks that are on the beach, the specificity of it rather than the generalities. And then as much as anything the things that I do with people are getting them to pay attention to things, really focusing them on an aspect of landscape or telling them a story that might come from a piece of land, sending them out to sit under a tree, ask themselves what story the tree might be telling, give them a bit of you know, you can spend half an hour giving people the science of, of the consciousness of mycelium and then send them out to walk in the woods and they have a completely different experience to the one they would have had had they just gone for a wander. It's you know, if it's just really simply, as you know, the notion that you're being watched when you're outside and that you're not just, it's not a subject and object relationship, you're not a person walking in the landscape and you're the only conscious thing and you're looking at all the pretty flowers and the trees. You're being observed, you're being watched, you're being experienced as well and simply the art of giving people exercises and practices which get them to do that and then feed that into their writing is very transformative. I'm Mm. I'm always surprised how transformative it is for people when they come on these things and they will often say, oh yeah, it's completely changed my relationship with land and I'm going to go home and it's going to be different. And it it is as well because you hear from people afterwards, but it's just that these simple things that, you know, in many indigenous cultures people just know and we used to know very obviously and it's, like you say, it's in the folk tales and myths of this country you're always being observed there are always spirits and all sorts of creatures out here and we don't believe that anymore rationally anyway because we're told we're, we 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 we're, it's not real but actually at some level we still do clearly believe it it's yes. not very far below the surface at all and you don't have to mm. prod people very much for them to go oh yes i always do that and then it all comes out it's very interesting which is another thing that makes makes me optimistic is that the pattern of modernity is actually very thin Yeah, I think it's kind of like a meniscus on a pond. We've only had a couple of hundred years of this crap, and you know, it's given us lots of material stuff which we undeniably benefit from, Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of made us quiescent to the kind of cultural claims it makes. But I think you have to separate those things. You have to separate the the technology and the machinery and the economics that can be beneficial and can also be very destructive. But on a personal level, people like from the bigger story of modernity, which is you know, which is what you call this disenchantment the taking away of the stories, the myths, the relationships with nature, the notion that everything is just dead matter, that there is no God, there is no spirit, etc. So all the, basically everything that's, that's held up the spiritual life of every culture in human history until now is just knocked away. And we say, well, there's nothing here except what we can see through the microscope. But we know it isn't true, because our bodies know it isn't true. And it doesn't take very long, actually, like you say, just to sort of knock it away.
0: No and it's and it's, back. yeah, and it's interesting it, it is an interesting how easy it is to shift people's perception, so I'm interested in what you're saying that you do on your courses because one of the the key things that I do in my own retreats is you know we talk about the stories that we know say about a crow crow's ubiquitous, mm. right everybody everybody thinks they know what a crow thinks they know what a crow means mm. in Irish literature, it's very much associated with a Morrigan, who sometimes is called a war goddess, there are all kinds of stories about a crow, mm. but what what is the crow scene when it looks at us? You know, mm. what, what, play, what part do we play exactly. in the story of yeah. a crow, in yeah. the story that the crow tells itself yeah. about the world? And I don't mean that in any kind of, like, peculiar anthropomorphic mm. sense, but just to, to shift your perspective like that, I think, can be incredibly transformative.
1: No, it really is. I mean, we had a, we had a huge rook rook colony and rookery above our house for a couple of years, which I mean, this year has mysteriously disappeared. I don't know why. I'm missing the rooks. Um, but you, you watch the rooks' behaviour, it's very interesting, they're highly intelligent, but they always have a couple of sentinels on the tree looking out, and if you come <laughs> out into the vegetable garden, they start cackling in a particular way, and the others notice, and they start doing things. And it's a kind of possibly a warning, but they're also saying that there might be some food in the offing, and then they'll come down off and start bouncing around, and you can see they're, they're very, very clearly aware of what we're up to all the time, and they're having a relationship with us, and they know what we do, and it's, it's very, very interesting, they're highly intelligent creatures.
0: I also like to think that crows have mythology. To be honest, I mean, again, oh, they, you they? can argue yeah. exactly. So yeah.
1: why wouldn't they? What's what, the what's the, what's the crows got? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. what
0: part do we play in them? They've got a the story. Videos? I mean,
1: they're, well, they're high, corvids are highly intelligent. They're creating yeah. these kind of these, these myths in the sense of you know, maps of meaning, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's of course they are. Of course they are. Dogs do too. Yes. <laughs> in your sure. own strange, domestic way. As we
0: watch yours sleeping the in the
1: wife, she most of her time sleeping these days, but she's <laughs> definitely got her stories about the world.
0: Okay, so I'd like to finish up, we could go on forever about all of these subjects, I know, but to finish up, I'm curious... I'd like to go back to England again, mm. and with the benefit of, I guess, the objectivity that comes from from looking at what's going on mm. <laughs> from a different country. Given that you've written so much about about England and about what it means to be English these days, how, how do you see it now? You've been away from for five years. Clearly, mm. you go back. Clearly, you still have um, family over there and what have you. But how do you look? How do you see it and what's going on over there at the moment in terms of culture? How can how can it how can people in England develop any sense any real meaningful sense of what it might be to be English when, when there's all this mess?
1: Well, it's such a big question, and I don't really know what the answer is. Um, it's so overdeveloped. I mean, that's the basic problem England's got now. It's one of the most southeast of England is the most densely populated part of Europe, for example. Why? Well, there's a third of a million people being added to the population every year. So the population of England is going to increase by 3 million people in the next 10 years. Um, endless epic house building and road building and yeah. development. And everyone you know, everybody seems to think this is wonderful. I don't think that kind of society can have any relationship with its identity in that way. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, lots of the people now in England don't have an English identity anyway because they come from migrant families. Right. But also, even many of the people who do you know, have ancestry going back X hundreds of years, are living highly urbanised lives with no real sense of what's going on in the landscape or what their stories are. The English were kind of deracinated before anyone else. The Industrial Revolution happened there. People were taken away from the land hundreds of years ago. The land is where folk culture comes from. So if you're shoved into the cities in the 1800s, it's very hard to know what it even means to be English anymore. I mean, I struggle with this all the time, and I always come back down to the places again, actually. If it means anything, it means having a relationship with a particular place that has stories in it which is something anyone can do. You don't have to have English ancestry to do that. But just the kind of huge growth machine that runs Britain at the moment is just, it's endlessly filling the place up. More people, more more products, more growth, more speed. And it's, it's like a wheel that's turning faster and faster and faster and faster. And it affects the whole of Britain, but mainly England, because that's where most of the kind of action is economically and where most of the land is. So the people I know who are most english interestingly um not all of whom are ethnically english by the way at all they're not all white people at all but they're people living on the margins who have just stayed in a place for a long time and developed a relationship with it i always find satish kumar to be interestingly english satish kumar the editor of resurgence who kind of walked to england from india in the 60s
0: why do you Um, find him to be
1: because he stayed in a place, he's got a very interesting kind of Englishness in a way he's very Indian. but He's also, he never identifies himself as either of these things. He's got a very kind of Gandhian perspective. But he stayed in Dartmoor for 40 years and he knows the landscape really well. And he walks the moor every day and he makes bread. And so he has this Indian heritage, but he has his feet on the ground in one place. Uh, which is rather, I, I always find it rather lovely. But all the people I know in England who've got uh, a sort of Englishness, whatever that means are somehow living on the edges with their feet on the ground literally either you know living in woods in caravans or telling stories somewhere or right you know because they're on on the margins uh, because they've got a relationship with places
0: it's difficult though isn't it i mean one of the questions i'm always asked because i write so much about mm. place and work so much with the stories of place and and always gravitate towards the wild edges of places mm. and i'm constantly meeting young people in the cities mm. who who feel that they have to stay in the cities for whatever their work is. And often it's very, very good work. And, you know, constantly asking, well, how do you connect in the cities? And it's interesting because I, in The Enchanted Life, my latest book, I used an example which I stole from Sean Kane, a Canadian professor of literature who wrote a very wonderful book called The Wisdom of the Myth Tellers. And in that he quotes somebody, I can't remember exactly who it is, but somebody is walking around the streets of Sydney with an Australian Aboriginal Mm. elder And he is saying, the Aboriginal elder is saying to this guy, look, you see a soulless set of buildings, you know, you see concrete paths and Mm. roads that that have no spirit, whereas an Aboriginal would see that even the concrete, even the bricks have a dreaming Mm. to become something. Mm. And I thought that was very beautiful. And, And I could almost imagine a situation where you would actually have a city where the people who lived in it actually, you know, really were connected in a meaningful Mm. way with the the souls of their buildings and that it might actually be possible to do cities better. Uh, And we have to to lead to that. Well, it has
1: to be. Um, Not that I'm the right person to ask about this because i spent my whole life trying to run away from (laughs) cities. But it's not sustainable for most people. I mean, there's the interesting thing about a city like London, right? There's such a huge kind of multicultural churning place with people coming from all over the place in, in London, but all bringing their own particular... Stories and relationships with land with them but also all being taken away from the land that they came from and there's communities in London of people from everywhere in the world and they're all in London and they all bring these different ways of seeing and that's the kind of creative churning that actually builds new cultures over time. Um, You know it takes time but something will emerge from it because those people are all living in that city and like you say it's a very old city London, ancient city London doesn't look like one in a lot of ways but it's a really ancient city. And it's got an incredible... You can feel the layers of layers history There and and are rivers yeah. under the surface yeah. and literally and, and spiritually in all sorts mm-hmm. of ways. And it's always been, you know, for centuries it's been a place that's been churning with all sorts of people, but but this kind of chaotic, mad place that it is now, which in lots of ways is kind of just very, you know, difficult and overpopulated and there's real poverty and inequality and there's all sorts of awful stuff there, but, but all sorts of new stories will come out of that right. because the people have brought them from Africa and India mm-hmm. and you know, they, they will have to apply those ways of seeing to the land that they're in.
0: Sure, and of course any folklorist knows perfectly well that, that we all tell the same stories. Mm. They, have different, they wear different clothes, but yeah. at the heart of them they, they deal with the same things, yeah. they have the same characters, they have the same images, exactly, motifs, yeah. memes. It's,
1: um... And that stuff's starting to happen already, so you know, that's, that's interesting in that way. I mean, the thing I really hate more than anything else is blandness. Mm-hmm. That's actually what all of my writing has been about as well. It doesn't matter where people come from it matters that what they do when they're there isn't fucking boring. To be honest with <laughs> you, mean, really, it's as simple as that. My, my, my book, Real England, was, was the subtitle was the battle against the bland. Right. So it was kind of activist title, wasn't it? But you know, that's the blanding of the country was what I really hated. Mm. And in that book, I spent you know I, I spent time in traditional English pubs in little villages, but I was also in kind of street markets in the East End, which are very multicultural. Right. And they're really alive, right. you know. They're yeah. really alive. They've got people from all over the world in, and they've got mm-hmm. kind of cockneys, and and then there's a kind of you know Pakistani guy, and then there's someone from Kenya, and there's someone from Eastern Europe, and they're all selling different kinds of food, and it's insane, and you don't know what half of it is, and it's really interesting. <laughs> but but it's, it's diverse in the in the real sense of that word, you know, in the kind of sort of slightly tiresome propagandist sense that we get sort of shoved down our throats a lot now, but it's really, you know, it's real, it's real yeah. colour and it comes from people on the ground and I'd give me that any day over some fucking shopping centre that that's that's taking everything over. So, you know, stories come from, you know, they get brought across the sea perhaps and then they land in a place mm-hmm. and then they take a different form, it's okay, what's always happened. So in that sense, you know, that's... As I say, as long as it's interesting and it's coming from the ground up and not being sort of dropped from the top down, then it's it's great. So, you know, that's another optimistic way of looking at anything. Interesting stuff, new forms always come out of chaos or come out of crisis. They don't come out of comfortable, slow, sensible progress. There always has to be some sort of crash or crisis or something to bring new forms along. So... That's that's what's happening now. So everything's kind of churning, but you know we're, we're always going to be telling stories
0: in there.
1: So the sort of results, whatever they are,
0: stories as a an antidote to blandness. Well, that's a good place. It's that's good, a it? good place yeah, well, to stop. That, this yeah.
1: is what we need. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it on. More of it from anywhere.
0: Great. Well, thanks very much for talking to me. That's all right. It's been great. Thank you all for listening to the surgical podcast, and if you enjoyed it. Please do continue to follow our work at The Hedge School, where you'll find free resources as well as paid-for courses designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. It's about dreaming, and it's about waking up. Above all, it's about dreaming ourselves awake. Our podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters, If you're able to support our work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for The Hedge School, or you can find a link on our website at www.thehedgeschool.org. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.